Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Robert Childs, who is a well-known rapier competition champion and author of the new book, Revelations of Rapier. So, without further ado, Robert, welcome to the show. Why, thank you for having me. Uh, let's just orient everybody as to where you are. So whereabouts in the world are you? So presently, I live in uh, California, which is the west coast of the United States, uh, just uh, about an hour north of the state capital, Sacramento. Okay. Yeah, so LA is huge and not the state capital, and San Francisco is huge and not the state capital. Uh, it's like, you know, I, I've been to Michigan a few times, to the state capital of Lansing, but Detroit oh. is not the capital. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is it with America having having these tiny little towns that nobody knows about being the state capital and these enormous great I, cities? Nobody wants to live in the state capitals, I think is what it is. <laughs> it's just a little, bit, a little bit too political, a little too boring, you know. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, how did you get into historical martial arts? So for me, it was actually a couple of transitions. Um, I've, I have been uh, fascinated with uh, learning to fight with bladed weapons for literally as long as I can remember. I mean, my, my earliest memories are um, stealing my dad's buck knife. Uh, I was, this is even before I was ever in, in preschool, but I would take my dad's buck knife and I, would, I used to be able to fit in that space behind the couch, between the wall and the back of the couch there. And I used to mm -hmm. practice moves that I had seen uh, on TV shows and, and movies. And then, of course, you know, after I had, you know, thoroughly exhausted my, uh, my knowledge of, uh, of movie uh, fight moves, I had to then, you know, go back to my mom and, and uh, you know, because the, the locking mechanism for the buck knife was just, it was beyond my comprehension. So I had to kind of get that back to her. <laughs> And, and my mom later admitted she was she was concerned. She was concerned about her, her young son there because of his fascination with knives. But fortunately, it was a very healthy fascination, as it turned out. But I actually didn't get my first official fencing lesson until I was uh, 17 years old. Um, I was in high school, had a question for my English teacher, uh, waited till after class. And as I was walking up to his desk, I had just happened to glance off to my left 
and in the armoire that he had, uh, there, I saw some Olympic fencing sabers and foils. And all of a sudden, whatever question I had on my mind at the time was completely gone. And I had a new question. And I was like, oh, uh, you know, do you fence? He says, yes. And I says, well, do you teach by chance? He says, yeah, actually I do. And I says, how much? He says, yeah, yeah. He said, how, I, I said, how much? And he said, it's absolutely free. I said, sign me up. And, and there you go. I, I became my high school's first uh, official fencing student uh, at Federal Way High. And uh, from there, I, I, I went forward with it. Uh, even after I had joined the military, after graduating high school, I was training with uh, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Capen in uh, Russo-Hungarian Sabre up in San Jose. Uh, it was, again, it was here in California. And uh, I was fencing with foil and saber primarily, a little bit of epee, not, not, not too much. Uh, I, I was really interested with, uh, with the foil and the saber, particularly saber and the whole concept of point and edge. But uh, it wasn't until uh, a, a few years after that that um, I was attending a fencing practice uh, for Olympic fencing. And I happened to notice that uh, after our two-hour session was finished, another group would come in and uh, it was a group of SCA people who were fencing with uh, rapiers and then all of a sudden I was you know I, I'd noticed because my whole reason for wanting to learn fencing in the first place is because I wanted to learn actually how to become a swordsman and Olympic yeah. fencing was great at the time uh, but it was really more of the sportsman aspect uh, of, of fencing so these these folks were doing a little bit closer at least in my estimation to, you know, you're using a, a more weighty weapon, something that's more akin to an actual rapier. Uh, so what turned out to be the case is I would fence for the first two hours Olympic uh, with foil and saber. And then the second two hours, I would fence against these SCA people uh, with rapier. And uh, over time, my reputation uh, with the weapon grew. And eventually, um, right around, oh, I don't know, the 10-year mark, uh, HEMA started really coming into its own. It really started uh, flourishing in a fashion that was, it was spreading everywhere. And I happened to run into a HEMA group at that point and uh, I would practice with them. And then the HEMA competitions came about and yeah, it was just, it was more people to fence against and different styles and, you know, the, the different uh, uh, skill levels. I don't know. I just, I fell in love with it. So even to this day, though, I, I will still fence against people in the SC. Basically, if you have steel, it's close to real. <laughs> so I, that's, what I'm, that's my uh, my motto for it. So, but yeah, I, that's how I ended up transitioning over into HEMA was through Olympic fencing to SCA into HEMA. Okay. It's actually very similar to how I got started because I did, um, yeah, my parents were, were quietly taking weapons off me when I was little. And, <laughs> and, we know, would have gotten that. along famously. <laughs> well, or we would have murdered each other. <laughs> or, or, you know, yeah, well, gotten very good at the, at the pretend aspect. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and then, you know, I did um, fall and saber at school. Um, my so English equivalent of high school. Um, and then at university, again, frustrated with the artificialities of sport fencing. Um, me and some friends started a historical fencing club called the Dawn Society. And we, we were playing around with each other in like late 92, early 93. And we started the club officially in 94. And then we, there was no SCA in Edinburgh at the time, at least not that we ever knew of. Otherwise, I may very well have done an SCA tour for, I don't know, a decade or so um, as well. So you uh, you got into the historical martial arts scene, I guess, what, early 2000s, something like that? Uh, yeah, it would have been right around there. 
Yeah. And then, of course, the tournament scene just exploded in about... Yeah. I mean, it really started in about 2003, 2004, but by 2010, it was everywhere. Yeah, right across that 10-year span is when... It, yeah. I mean, explosion is, is not a... Mm. It's not a bad word for it because it really did. It just it, it went outward and everywhere all of a sudden now you're, I was seeing advertisements for these different and various tournaments. And obviously I was looking for the biggest ones that I could go to. Not because, you know, uh, for it was really for no other reason other than the biggest tournaments were going to have the most people that I was going to get an opportunity to fence against. And for me, that is that is really where my greatest learning happens is when I'm actually fencing against somebody, a skillful opponent, and having to deconstruct what they're doing in real time. That's, that's where my, my skill sets really uh, benefit me the most. Yeah, and, and everyone's optimal learning environment is slightly different. My absolute best learning environment is when I'm teaching. I learn fastest when I'm actually teaching, right? Yep. Um, and then I can apply that when fencing. Um, and I might... And then, of course, fencing, I learned stuff kind of after the fact. Right? Well, okay. How the hell did you just hit me? Could we just do that again? Oh, <laughs> like that. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. For me, I get um, the same – I get a similar kind of experience, only it's actually from when when a student who doesn't uh, – you know, who, who's first starting out, I mean, they're going to be the ones most often that ask you sometimes the most interesting questions because yeah, they'll sure. ask something that you just – you weren't thinking about it before. It's like, well, why do you do it this way? Oh. That's a very good question. Why do I do it that way? Oh, and then it forces you to have to think about that. And why do you do it this way? Is it just because it feels right? Is it because it's martially sound? Have you given any thought to it at all? It really forces you to have to break down the why in order to properly explain it to the student who is seeking to learn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing quite like um, curious students as a spur to growth. <laughs> True fact. Um, so you've. You've not just been doing the sword stuff, though. So you have a background in various other martial arts, correct? I do, yes. Uh, I took uh, Aikido uh, for a time, uh, but I also took uh, Kaju Kembo, which is uh, it's kind of a, uh, a street fighting form of uh, Asian martial art. And um, that one I really enjoyed because it was very practical. It was very useful. Mm. It, it looked at uh, street combat from the perspective of, okay, uh, understand, you know, you will get hit, so make sure that you are doing X, Y, and Z in order to make sure that we end this in the shortest amount of time possible, because you don't want to take damn. It was very, very practical and very, uh, uh, very useful in my mind. So, and uh, as it turned out, um, it was one of my first introductions to uh, basically, it it, it it was fencing. It, it was understanding measure, understanding timing, reading your opponent's tells, all of the things that I use to this day in rapier combat. Um, it's when I first began to understand that all of this stuff really has uh, a common root. It all comes from right. the same place. It's just a slight variation based upon the implement at hand. Yeah, and the context in which you're using it and what constitutes a win in that context. Yeah, not dying. That's always a good one for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like every, every martial art has in common, like, don't get hit in the face if you can avoid it. That's um, always a good one. That's always a good one. <laughs> You know, um, pres preserve the pretty, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is there any particular um, like thread through those martial arts which kind of struck you as fundamental to everything? Yes, there is, as a matter of fact. And for me, in my experience, I have found that it was the measure. It was understanding yeah. 
what is that ideal measure? Whether you're talking an open hand martial art and you need to have that ideal measure to provide you with the greatest leverage over your opponent in that particular uh, technique that you're trying to execute, or whether it is understanding measure in rapier combat or in longsword combat to understand that, you know, because let's face it, speaking of rapier specifically, you only need to, you know, bury the two to three inches of your blade in order for it to be a lethal strike against your opponent. And if you have a, an acute understanding, I mean, you've got it dialed in down to the millimeter, that is an, a gigantic advantage. Because if your opponent sure. does not have that, well, I mean, you know when you can strike and they do not. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of times I've had an opponent lunge against me. I didn't raise my sword in the slightest. I just let them do their attack and watch as their point just falls short by you know a couple of inches and it's and they're like oh man you know i can't believe i did this like i can believe it you know (laughs) i mean how far away you were but for me yeah i would say that that common one of the common threads is going to be that understanding of measure because that is such a vital key to being able to take yourself to the victory circle yeah um couple of things there first one is back when i was doing sport fencing competition particularly at school um, I used to have this lame jacket for doing foil that was about four sizes bigger than it should have been, right? And I would lean forward slightly so it would hang down. And people kept hitting it, but the light didn't go off because it wasn't giving him enough resistance. That, <laughs> well, see, you, that's, 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 like, that's, like a, that's like you're wearing a cloak. It's beautiful, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it, it's absolutely not. Sourcemanship. No, it's just, no, it's not. It's just it's just gamesmanship and and, and fundamentally naughtiness. It's like, it's, you no, but I don't imagine that. that your opponents would probably do that too many times before they realized oh, I got to go no, a little no. bit further. They kept they kept checking the blade, and then we would we would do that thing where you go and test that the system each is other, working, and, then and so I stick my chest forward like this, and, <laughs> and they would poke me, and sure enough, the light would go off. It's like, well, what the hell's going on? I'm sure I hit him. <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah okay now the two to three inches thing yeah it's true in that if you shove a blade two or three inches into somebody's chest you're likely to do an awful lot of damage Um, and in in fencing your friends and in fencing in a kind of competitive or sporting environment you don't absolutely shouldn't be hitting any harder than that yeah right we don't want to break our toys right and but in the historical sources, we almost invariably see something like a foot of steel extending behind the dead person's head because sure. people are running it much deeper. Um, I have theories as to why that's the case. Do you? Do you have any? So there's a couple of uh, yes, and there's a couple of uh, of possibilities that come up when you look at something like that. I mean, the number of times, uh, for example, that um, I have begun an attack against my opponent and I'm almost right at the moment of about to strike and that's when it sort of registers in their head that they're being attacked and their uh, reflex action of throwing their weapon out there or suddenly making an attack of their own against me at that point in time has occurred and of course if you've got two oppositely moving bodies uh, coming forward you're going to increase the force significantly Um, but also too it could very well be from the perspective of if I was lunging against my opponent uh, and it's going to be Um, say for example the head is the target that I'm shooting for because I like to refer to that as the off switch because whether you penetrate the skull or not uh, you move that head in a violent fashion the whole body has to follow it and everything that they were doing melts away 
if I'm shooting at your head uh, in a martial context, mind you, not, not a competition, but I'm going to put some significant force into that in order to make sure that you stop whatever it is that you're doing so that way I can make sure I'm the only one who survives that fight. Uh, when it comes to the torso, however, in a martial context, um, the closer I get to my opponent's weapon, the easier it's going to be for them to potentially harm me in some fashion. So if I'm, if I'm shooting for that torso as a target area, that's not instant kill. I mean, if yeah, I do that so. and, I, and I bury my sword into my opponent's body and it's you know, sticking a foot out, uh, out of their back, well, they have an opportunity in that moment while my sword is bound up in their body to take me with them. And mind you, that would be a very period way to die, but I'm not, I'm not a fan of uh, you know, if I'm in a martial context to, to do so. I see. I have a different theory as to why they're, they're going through. I mean, obviously, if, if two people are attacking at the same time, as often happens in the treatises, you are going to get that much closer measure. But I think, for example, Capafaro is looking for it because if you stick the sword all the way through them, so there is like a foot or so still sticking out the back, you are so far inside their point that the time it's going to take them to pull that sword back to be able to actually hit you, you have lots and lots of time to get either past them or to get further control of their weapon. So I think it's it's like getting like if you have a dagger and your opponent has a spear, your only option is to get really close. Indeed. Yeah. So you're well inside the point where the spear is no longer useful. Um, and I think basically it's a less extreme version of that. You're getting that close because you know your sword is going to get tied up while it's stuck inside them, and you don't want to be beyond them. You don't want to be sort of um, back where their point is. You want to be past, well past the point, so they can't hit you with it. That's my theory. And that is a sound theory. That is entirely possible. And in some instances, that could actually be what somebody was aiming for. Because as we all know, uh, fencing is, is something like a dance. And your opponent has a say in that dance. And if they present to you the opportunity to run them through and maintain control of that weapon, well, then you've accomplished exactly what you need to do. You have scored the uh, killing blow on your opponent and you have preserved your own skin at the same time. For me... Um, I have this uh, uh, immediate reflexive action that I do when I strike my opponents is that I will, uh, my, short, my sword shoots out and then it immediately goes into the parry that they would, uh, to, to block the attack that they would have to do from that particular position their sword was in. And from the perspective of if I can reach that person's heart or reach that person's lung with just you know, a few inches of the tip of my sword and then immediately parry uh, following that, um, that, that is probably going to be the course of action that I'm following most often. Now, obviously, we don't have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to actually, and, and, you know, thankfully, we don't have to actually do this, you know, in order to yeah. find out. But, but thinking about it theoretically, it is, it is the, the approach that I would take. Yeah, although um, in like all the sources, pretty much, almost all the time when you're striking, you're striking with physical control over your opponent's weapon. Either you have their delay so. bound up against your forte, or you have like your left hand is on the is on their hilt or whatever. So you actually have that control as you're striking anyway. So shouldn't that line already be closed? Yes, it should in an ideal situation. In fact, what you're talking okay. about right there is something that I call, uh, and I, I write about this in my book, but I call it the two-target concept whereby every time I'm going to make an attack against my opponent, there's actually two targets, not one. And the first target is always, invariably, my opponent's weapon. And then the follow-on yeah. target is the fencer behind that weapon. 
you can use one of the three methods that I detail, which is force time or a combination of force time in order to gain that uh, control of that weapon, to attack that weapon. But the uh, that is always the first thing that happens. Because if you don't, sure. and you shoot out at your opponent, and let's say you hit them and you get away, well, that was really luck. Because if you didn't have control of that weapon, it was just luck that he didn't attack you at the same time. It was just luck that you got away and they didn't manage to have enough skill to hit you back. But the thing about it is, in a martial context, you don't want to rely on luck in order to save your life. It's, you know, because eventually, as we all know, luck runs out. Sure. Um, now, you use the terms force time and force time in a way that I'm pretty sure the average listener isn't familiar with because I don't think the average listener has read your book. So, you uh, not yet, but hopefully this. we can change that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I detail that there are three ways that you can gain uh, control of an opponent's weapon, and or, or in my, is the way I like to put it, to attack that weapon, the first target. And force is just exactly that. You are applying some sort of force, whether that is uh, you're utilizing, say, for example, the most basic example of that would be a beat. You impart a force upon your opponent's weapon in order to dislodge its position and therefore clear a path for you to be able to strike your opponent. Um, and then there is time. Time is when you are basically engage, forcing your opponent to engage in an action that moves their sword in a pathway that doesn't threaten you and therefore clears a pathway for you to strike them. So the most uh, common example of that you would see is would be something like a feint, right? I can feint to my opponent's uh, left side and they start moving to parry, but I disengage and now while their sword is continuing to finish that initial action, my sword is actually on the other side of their weapon heading for an entirely different target. That is utilizing time to deal with their weapon. And then finally, there is the combination of force time where you can uh, utilize both of them as an attack against your opponent's weapon. And again, just using those two prior examples, the easiest example of that would be uh, beat my opponent's weapon, which initiates a reaction to put their sword back in the position that it was. I disengage as it passes by, and I shoot for the target area that is now free and clear. I imparted a force, made them burn time, and I used those two factors in order to uh, attack the target. Okay, and this is this is your own conceptualization of it, because it's different to the way the same ideas are described in historical sources or in modern sport fencing. Yes, everything about that is from looking at it from... Uh, I have had the unique opportunity to uh, travel around the world because uh, I've, I've spent my entire adult life uh, in the U.S. military. And the U.S. military likes to take its officers and move them around all over the place, uh, different countries, you know, different states. And through that, I've had the opportunity to fence a great many different kinds of people. And all of this that I'm talking about now is based upon the experience over these last 34 years of traveling around the world, whether it was to Italy, Sweden, Japan, uh, or you know, all over the, the states here in the U.S. And putting all of that together, learning all of that, and, and putting that into a uh, recognizable and understandable format for teaching to my students. Okay, so you basically... Uh, synthesized your own specific method. Specific method. That's a good word yeah. for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's basically, it's what the historical writers, Kevin Ferrer, Fabrice and whatnot, it's what they did. They, they had exposure to various kinds of training and whatever. But the thing that they put down in their book, because every book is different, you can tell that they're actually... They have their own way of looking at these various different concepts and describing them slightly differently. And sometimes you'll come across two completely different 
terms or descriptions for what turns out to be the exact same thing. Precisely. Absolutely. Yeah, what you okay. just described is the argument that I will give to someone who's I've I've had I've had various critics for various reasons, as as we've all, I'm sure, uh, run into. I'm sure you've run into them yourself. Yeah, and I've I've had people who say, for example, that oh well, what you do isn't period. Uh, what you do is not a you know is 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 totally modern. It's not period. And it's like well, that's true. Uh, it, and what they're <laughs> saying so is 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 true is true and false because uh, because in all honesty. I, as much as I wish I could make the claim, I did not invent the Perry. The Perrys that I use have been in existence for you know centuries, if not thousands of years. And but where they are correct is that I guess the the best way to explain it is that they have a tendency to forget. Let's say, for example, we look at uh, Capafero, right? Mm -hmm. Capafero was born one day, and but. Did he come into this world knowing everything about fencing that he would later write about? No, of course not. He learned what was available to him. He saw where there were opportunities uh, in order to improve it for himself, to make it what he thought was better. He fenced against other people, I'm sure, and he was able to build his experience and then ultimately tweak that knowledge that he had and create the style that we now associate to his name. Well, I mean, honestly, that's that's what I have been doing for myself, not for any purposes sure. of actually writing this book, but it was for the purposes of becoming my best swordsman. Because if there's one thing that I have definitely learned is that you can never truly learn something completely just from a book. You have to couple that with your own experience. Sure. And uh, my travels around the world have, they gave me a unique opportunity to do that very thing. So when someone tells me, oh, well, what you do isn't period, well, my counter argument to that is actually what I do is more period than what they do because I'm doing exactly what those period masters of old did for themselves. So while this person oh, who's okay. criticizing me is saying that they don't, you know, they're saying that I'm not period. Well, actually, you know, the way I'm going about it is very period. Yeah. Okay. Your your approach in synthesizing your own system, having studied as well, Fiori makes the claim in his introduction that he studied with uh, many masters um, Italian and German right and he, he says that um, and yeah they're sort of going around and studying under lots of different people and seeing lots of different approaches and synthesizing your own that's an entirely period thing to do but the thing is what people mean when they say period is what I, I, mean, what when mean, I say, yeah. when I say yeah, when I yeah what I mean when I say historical and um, when I say historical I mean you're recreating a documented historical system as faithfully as possible right correct yeah. So, so when I'm teaching a, if I'm calling what I'm what I'm doing historical rapier, I will have to also specify well who's historical rapier. Well, I'm a Capafera man, so I will teach classes in Capafera's rapier. And any time when I deviate from the book in any way for any reason, I have to flag that up to the students so they can see exactly what's coming from the book and what I have had to interpolate, extrapolate, or make up. Right. Yep. So. so um, I think I think where I differ from your critics in that regard is I don't see this anything even slightly wrong with coming up with your own approach, as long as you don't pretend that it's somebody else's. Indeed, that is true. <laughs> and I have never made such a claim. I am not one who said, you know, if someone wanted to, if someone comes to me and they said, yes, I would very much like to learn uh, you know, Capaferro's fence, uh, style of fence, or I would like to learn Fabris's style of fence, or, or insert period master here. I yeah. am not the guy that you want to come to for that. 
Sure. I have a very specific way that I'm going to teach that student because I am going to do it from the perspective of I'm going to try and find out what is that student's strengths, what are their weaknesses, and the things that I teach them in a given context may not necessarily be something that I myself use, but I will teach it to this student because for some reason this student can make it work for them. So if I'm going to be a good coach, at least in my mind anyway, I'm going to help that student become their best swordsman, not the best mm -hmm. imitator of me. Right, and, and that, this is where historical martial arts are a little bit odd because in terms of actually winning sword fights, that's the only way to do it. You are correct, right? and, that, and that is exactly what I do for my students who are interested in that side of things. And it's different to, can you learn this particular period system? Yep. Right? Yep. It's like, like, you know, it's like a singer. Um, if a singer may have a voice that is perfectly suited to, I don't know, modern pop music and not really suited to 16th century madrigals at all. And if they want to be their best singer, they should probably be singing pop music. But if they love madrigals and they want to do their best to sing madrigals, then that's what they should do. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a, it's just a, different, a different goal that the student has that we as their teacher can help them with. Yep. And ultimately, I mean, and don't get me wrong, when I'm teaching my students to, in order to become what I call their best swordsman, I am doing so for the because they have that goal of becoming, you know, right. of maximizing the skill that they have. Now, if somebody wants to, I, I do believe absolutely that there is a, not only a place, but a, a, an absolute necessity for people who want to recreate the, as we call it, the period styles as closely as possible. Because that's that's knowledge that we don't have to start over from, you know. I mean, that's right. that's knowledge that anybody can can make use of and capitalize on. Because let's face it, the more knowledge you have about a particular subject and about the more experience you have on it, the greater you're going to be at that particular what subject it is, whatever it is that you've decided to uh, to take up. So absolutely, those those period practitioners absolutely need them. Those practitioners that want to maximize their best absolutely and just simply those that are trying to expound on all that information an absolute need for them as well yeah um you're probably best known for your tournament wins um, yes yeah yeah so so uh there's stuff we're going to come back to but we need to go into the tournament stuff first so that we can we can indeed compare it. so yep fire okay. away all right uh, you win a lot of tournaments, so you might be the right person to ask, how should you, or how do you train for tournaments? So speaking strictly from a rapier perspective, um, I can mm -hmm. tell you that I came rather, uh, kind of hit me straight in the face as far as how to do this, but there is a decided difference between fencing in a martial context with you and a buddy who are just trying to maximize that martial art uh, as best you can, and then going into a tournament that is judged and that has to be seen mm. by a bunch of people that are trying to grasp what it is that you're doing. And when yeah. you're talking about rapier combat in specific, rapier combat happens across literal fractions of a second. I mean, mm. if, if you're a judge and you happen to blink at the moment that an experienced rapier fencer makes their attack, they will literally make that attack and recover out in less time than it takes you to finish that blink. And now you have completely missed the action. Yeah. So I found when I, when I first was going to these much larger HEMA tournaments, um, that, that 
I was I, I had to start fencing not just to defeat my opponent, but I had to fence in a fashion that was conducive judges to judges see. seeing the action in the first place. Because the number of times I, I I honestly lost count of the number of times where. I reached out, struck my opponent, recovered back out again, and both of us stopped in the middle of what we were doing because we were anticipating the judges were going to throw up flags. Not a single flag to be seen, and my my opponent and I look at each other. We just kind of shrug and go, okay, I guess we just keep going. And, and the number of times that was happening, I mean, sometimes my opponent would be yeah. – you know, uh, you know, would be of the right mind. And he would say, you know, okay, look, guys, he, he hit me. This is like the third time, in which case then, you know, the judges will, because he self-called, the judges would give the points. But I learned that if you are fencing in a martial context, you can go as fast as you want. And absolutely, you do so with the absolute soundness of the techniques, uh, the strategies that you have learned. But when it comes to competition, you need to learn that when you strike your opponent, you got to leave that sword there for another second or two so that way the judges can actually see it. Because otherwise, you're literally going to expend all kinds of energy, fencing very soundly, and in a real context, you'd be the only one standing. But your opponent's going to walk away with the victory because he's getting the afterblows and they're calling you know that as a primary attack mm. because they never saw your attack to begin with. So when you are fencing for competition... Learn to leave that out there for just a little bit longer so that way the judges will actually see it. Because uh, as you get better, your attacks are going to be harder to discern. Yeah, I um, I run, I, have, I don't run tournaments, but I have been ring director many times. And obviously I've, I've presided over, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fencing bouts. Right? These days, when I'm at a tournament as a ring director, I tell my fencers, you have to assume that I and the judges are blind, drunk, and biased against you. And your job as fencers is to make it so obvious that you have just scored the hit, that there's absolutely nothing we can do except give you the point. And also, I'm, I'm not one of those judges who spends half an hour figuring out what exactly happened. If it isn't obvious, I throw it out and the fencers can do it again. And that is a very defense not to talk. That is a very good way to go about it as well. Instead of trying to sit there and bring the judges in on every single exchange and then have to talk it out because nobody wants to see that kind of fencing anyways. But I can tell you right now that, I mean, you can launch into that attack, hit that person, and then immediately parry what would have been their repost uh, after your attack had already struck. And all the judges are going to have seen was the fact that you parried him and that was it. Or, which is even worse... you know, and I get this. This is um, it's an unfortunate consequence of, of fencing in such a fashion that the judges can see it. But leaving your sword out there for another second or so, yes, is going to open you up to the afterblow. There's just no getting around it because you can't withdraw your sword in order to defend yourself, uh, in order to allow those judges to see that initial blow. So usually, what ends up happening is I make that attack against my opponent, usually of a thrust, because I'm a rapier guy. Let's face it. And I hit my opponent, I leave it there, and then my opponent follows up with a some sort of cut after the fact, but my sword is still sitting in them, and then the judges call it, okay, child's initial attack, uh, three points, uh, minus one point for the afterblow. And it's like, you know, there's, there's really nothing that can be done about that unless you just happen to have a really experienced judge working on that particular circuit. Yeah, so, so really, you would kind of like to see rapier fencing electrified. No, I would absolutely not oh, really want to not? see that. No, okay. I would because, not. Because electrification gets rid of that problem. You can it be does, as fast as you like. And 
if there is one thing that electrification taught me about Olympic fencing, it is that it introduces the ability and the uh, the gamesmanship factor into uh, into all of that. Now, mind you, if there was a way, for example, to um, if they were to electrify it in such a fashion that that thrust uh, that striking your opponent was it was it was infallible because I'm telling you I think electrification is what ruined Olympic style fencing. Oh, I agree. Uh, That's it, why I don't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that it absolutely ruined it. I think the actual key to it, the um, to making HEMA fencing better across the board, not just rapier but longsword and saber and all of them is having experienced judges. You got to have those judges knowing what they're doing in order to make this truly yeah. incredible event. Training them and paying them, I think. Yeah, because I mean, and I don't I don't know if the solution to that might be a um, like a, a certification or a course that uh, can be done that, and this person, you know, has this that shows, yes, I am I have gotten X amount of experience. I have been trained in how to judge, etc. I know where my eyes need to be. But I mean, like nobody gets into historical martial arts because they want to judge. No, judging is something yeah. that judging is something that people do so that other people can fence in a competitive environment. Yeah, it is massively it is altruistic. So I think I think yeah. And if you want them to be highly trained, then the time needs to be paid for, I think, in some way. Um Yeah, and if they're worthy of that pay, then you now know that you've got a you know, and like I said, some sort of way that you can vet these judges and whatnot. But I mean, when it comes to these tournaments, I try to help out as much as I can. Obviously, not on the rapier side. Rapier would certainly be something that I am most qualified to be able to judge. However, I'm usually competing in those yeah. tournaments. But at these events, I like to lend my assistance as a judge. Uh, like for example, longsword. Uh, mm-hmm. For me to be able to see. Uh, thrust of a longsword, it is. It's like breathing to me. It's second nature. And sure. Unfortunately, a lot of long swords would like to cut. Well, those are really easy to see because it takes a longer path. It takes a little bit longer time. Those are very simple things to see. But for a long swordsman who likes to cut a whole lot, who's trying to judge on the rapier side, I definitely feel for them. And I'm, I'm appreciative of their efforts. Uh, but yeah, most people have yeah, a really a hard set. time seeing those lightning quick thrusts. It's just, it's, it's hard to see unless you know uh, and are an expert in it yourself. Sure. Okay. Now, my question actually wasn't how to fence the tournaments, but how do you train for tournaments? Like conditioning and oh, gotcha. I don't know, right. and point control work and, and footwork drills. And how do you train? So for me, uh, cardio is a big factor there. Uh, you have got to have the wind to last throughout the entirety of the tournament. The number of times that I have seen people completely gas out as the tournament goes on and on because of the fact mm-hmm. that over the course of the day, you have got to have cardio. So for myself, when I'm going, uh, and, and I do this constantly, but uh, three times a week, uh, I go and I run. And usually for me, it's a mile and a half because um, I, I actually, I hate running. I do. <laughs> I find it to be completely boring. My mind is just, it's numb from it. But but there really is no substitute for the wind it gives you and the ability to have that endurance that is just, you know, you're fencing at 100% for the entirety of the day. There is no substitute for that. And then, of course, you need to be training yourself to have that automatic, those programmed reflexes that you don't have to think about. Because, you know, again, speaking from my own perspective of a rapier fencer, you once what once the action begins once that fast action begins you don't have time to consciously think about oh here comes an attack i'm going to parry to here and then i'm going to repose over to here all of that yeah. has to be instantaneously programmed reflexes that you have done so 
you want that cardio and you want those programmed reflexes because fencing is what okay. happens in the midst of the fast action. So, I mean, I have to agree. I mean, I was at the, in the semifinals of a tournament that I went on to win like long, long ago. Um, and it was basically a one hit thing. If you three points and you're out and a hit to the body or the head was three points, right? And that would be, yeah, that would and be this, a one shot. And this guy thought he was going to use speed on me. So I, I was approaching him carefully in quiet after, as Capoeira would have to say. And he did this lightning fast, way too deep um, attack over my sword arm. And I have absolutely no idea what happened, except I was in Seconda and my sword was bent in a semicircle with a point in his chest and his sword was somewhere off to the side. I have no idea what happened. I mean, I can figure it out after the fact, but it was so fast, I just had no idea what happened. Your body reacted without thought. That's exactly Exactly. what happened. And that is fencing. So how do you train for that? What are the specifics of how you do that? Unfortunately, uh, it is through the boring, tedious nature of repetition. It is something that you have to do because your body has to be programmed for a reflex. Now, the fortunate thing is that reflexes can indeed be programmed, but you can also program bad ones too. So that's, that's another thing entirely. But you have to do that through the repetition. Now, if you're if you're got a training partner in front of you, great. Then you guys need to be utilizing that in terms of uh, start with the most common and uh, the most uh, realistic attack that you're going to be facing against your opponent. Right? You're going to in rapier, for example, you're dealing with the thrust to the to the torso and to the head. So. Let's say, for example, you're trying to train that reflex and you're working on your, uh, you know, your parry for whatever the case may be is, right? You have your opponent or your training partner thrust for that and you immediately, par- and starting slowly, parrying and then responding with the riposte. Now, what that's going to show you is, did you parry, let their sword go and then come after them and then you both end up hitting each other? It's going to show you where all of those little flaws are. And once you get that reflex down, once it's no longer something you have to think about, that is when the magic happens because now you're free to let your conscious mind before the fast action see what's happening, see where you need to uh, focus your efforts. And then in the fast action, you're, there is no time for conscious thought. It is just letting your body do the very thing you trained it to do. And unfortunately, it is, yes, you have to do it through repetition. It is doing something hundreds and then thousands of times in order to get your body to recognize the feeling of what it feels like to do something right. And I'm telling you right now, when you've got that down, and you do it wrong, your body is just going to know it. You don't even have to think about it. You'll, your body will know. And from that point on, you'll do it exactly the way that your body has been programmed. In the fast action, no time for conscious thought. You got to do it this way. And I'm, you know, unfortunately, like I said, I'm, I'm, my mind is easily numbed. I don't like, I don't <laughs> like boring things. I really don't. Uh, but cardio is important. And then, of course, that repetition of doing something thousands of times in order to make sure that you're doing it exactly the way you're supposed to when it's literally happening across, you know, fractions of a second. Okay. So let's say you have a big tournament coming up next week. What will you do on the seven days leading up to it? So for me, I'm going to make sure that I am really well hydrated. Um, because if you're starting off that way, then you're doing yourself a gigantic favor. I'm going to continue that uh, cardio, but then I'm going to stop uh, probably four or five days before that tournament because uh, it allows the body to heal and you're still now at your peak as far as that cardio is concerned. When it comes to fencing against my opponents, I am going to, 
as much as possible. I will be fencing right up to the day before uh, of that tournament mm -hmm. because I want those reflexes. I want my mind in that strategic uh, place in order to, from the word go, I'm going to be fencing at my best. And then if you can, when you're at the event itself, get some fencing in there. Get your blood going. Make sure that your adrenaline is already flowing through the system. And when you step on to that uh, fighting circle for the first time against your opponent, you're fencing at your best from the word go. I've seen a lot of people that go out there and you know they'll do some stretching beforehand and maybe some jumping around and, and whatnot, but that's not putting your mind in that space you need in order to be fencing at your best. Yeah, back in the, uh, when I was at university in the early 90s, my fencing coach also gave me some fencing coaching training. And one of the things I was taught to do is how to give a fencer a warm-up lesson right before they go and fence. In a that is an outstanding lesson. That is, right? I would because yeah, yeah it's, it's not it's not you know jumping jacks and, and push-ups. It's it's getting them into that fencing frame of mind, getting them moving smoothly. Don't push them too hard. You don't want them tired, but you want everything moving in a fencing manner, nice and warm, right before they go in. And then when they go in, it's just the same thing but harder and faster. That was a very smart man because that is exactly yeah. the whole purpose behind getting in some fencing but that I do before the actual tournament itself. It is for that very reason. Yeah. I mean, and that would be literally two minutes before they their, their fight is called. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so they don't have time to cool down in between. Because um, this is one thing where I think the historical martial arts fencing uh, tournament scene um, could learn a lot from the Olympic tournament scene. Because they've been doing it for a hundred years, and they—I don't like the electrification. I'm with you on that, and I—I'm not particularly interested in, in the sport of fencing itself. But the way they run tournaments, the way they train for tournaments, the way they approach tournaments—it's—it's it's highly evolved. Um, what what do you think of the current um, historical martial arts tournament scene, and how would you improve it? Currently, I think it has come a long way. Uh, since mm -hmm. it first, you know, since we talked about that first explosion across the, the country and across the rest of the world. How I would improve it, though, would be to, I mean, it's in the word itself, right? We've got historical European martial arts, right? We're talking about from a historical. Now, when I approach this, I like to do so from a martial context. Even when I'm fencing in competition, yes, there are some artificialities that I will insert, as we have discussed, so that way judges can see the points. But the techniques that I utilize are going to be such that if I was to use them in a real sword fight, God forbid ever ever get into that situation, but I now have all of the skill sets that I need in order to survive that fight. Now, you can fight in a martial context, in a HEMA tournament, and still win. I am living proof of that. But the ways that I think that can be improved, one way that still exists that I would like to see improved would be, for example, we all know about, uh, if you've ever fenced in, in a HEMA tournament, we all know about the concept of afterblows, right? You know, you can hit your opponent and then they've got one tempo in order to try and strike you back. And, uh, and, I, and I get why they do that, but I would also like to see the introduction of the rule set whereby, for example, in Rapier, if I lunge into my opponent's sword arm, right? If I stop thrust his, his arm, there is no chance for a for afterblow after that. You have you have been stopped. That is, there is not going to be an afterblow after that because my sword is embedded in your arm. Or if my opponent was to lunge and they thrust into my face, right? There is no afterblow after that. There is, I mean, even like we've already discussed, even if my opponent doesn't penetrate my skull and just simply violently moves my head, 
whatever it was I was about to do, that goes away. There is no afterblow after that. I would like to see the introduction of some of these um, some of these simple rules that I think would make things a bit more realistic. It would it would take away uh, the sportific the, the sportifying aspect of it just a little bit more. There's always going to be some of it. Yes, I get it. There's no way you can make it entirely you know realistic, but I think we should be doing things to try and get it as close as we can, uh, you know, without uh, actually breaking our friends. Are you familiar with um, the 19th century version of sharps? So not sharp swords, but sharps. No. Uh, okay. It's it's a bit like a point d'arrêt, which is three little spikes attached to the end of a foil, which, which basically it sticks on the jacket, but doesn't go through. But a sharp, it's about an eighth of an inch long, maybe a quarter of an inch if you're feeling mean, with a big shoulder <laughs> on it so it can't go through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and you, you fence sometimes wearing a jacket, sometimes without a jacket. It's because, you know, you're, you're training for the actual duel. Um, and that way the point doesn't slip. You know, when you've been hit, the blood spots on your jacket will show where you've been hit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, and you know, it's, it's not going to slip off a mask. It's not going to slip off a bit of protective gear. It sticks, right? But it doesn't get stuck. It just it just doesn't right, right. slip on, yeah. on the thing, right? right. Um, and yeah, it's not safe, safe, but it's you're very unlikely to kill anybody with these things. Yeah, and although I will admit, uh, I like the concept of that. I do, and, and the use of it. But I'm, I'm, I immediately think about okay, over the course of an entire all day long tournament, you know, how many, how many sticks that people are going to get on them, but and don't get hit. No, it changes the way it's people true. defense. Yeah, it I get totally it. I do because because they don't, they don't fuck about. They don't take chances. Yeah, right? I, I do and like. I trust me, I do like the sound of that. Uh, I do, and I, and in a sense too. I mean, for a great many people, anyways, I think that would. Um, it would introduce. It would change their fencing into something totally. a bit more. Uh, it it, it would lean them a little bit more towards the martial aspect. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, a classic example of that. I, I was watching an interview one time of a guy that was. Uh, he was talking with a reporter, and in the background there were two of his students, and they were knife fighting with rubber knives, and they were all up in each other's faces when they were doing each sure. one of their exchanges. I mean, just all over each other. And he's talking to the reporter, saying about how he wants to get and give this martial perspective. So he then turns around and says, hey, watch this. And he walks over to his two students and he takes away the rubber knives and he gives them two other rubber knives that have been rigged as stun guns, you know, 50,000 volts. And it completely changed the way these two guys approached each other because now they know they're, you know, they're going to take 50,000 volts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It it totally changed the way they fenced. And it was like, they were no longer up in each other's faces. They were now suddenly very concerned with measure. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was, but yeah, I, I love anything that that makes something forces people to be more martial and and i wish we could just rely on people to do it on their own but clearly no, that is not the case well because people respond to the the exact details of the environment that they're in and a blunt sword with a rubber tip on the end makes people behave completely differently to a sharp sword very um, much so i'm i'm I, w- I would like to experiment to see what would happen if we use those sort of those eighth of an inch sharp points with with a big rubber thing behind them so there's no possibility of it actually going through um yeah. I, I think once you've been hit once with that you'll be very very careful not to get hit again <laughs> 
I think you're right. And and for a tournament like that, what would be really interesting is to see a tournament done with those, but mm-hmm. instead of like, you know, doing it to 12 points or whatever the case is, you know, and, and everybody is just, you know, bloody as all get up by the end of it because, you know, you're going to take some hits. It's just a simple fact of that. But to make it a single, every exchange is to one, one right? Yeah. yeah, it's to one blow. And then that person moves on, the other person, you know, yeah. loses So the bracket, person who the wins is. is the only person with no blood on their jacket. There you go. That's, a, that's yeah. not a bad way to do it. Actually, I do have a friend speaking with, I, have, I do have a friend who fences a lot in the SCA and back in the day when he was perhaps a bit younger and a bit um, a bit less what's the word a little more spry right yeah. no, 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 no 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 perhaps a bit less he was a bit more brash when he was younger oh, he was gotcha. a very very good rapier fencer he would he would chalk the end of his rapier right that is so he did this as an SCA guy yeah but just to piss people off Oh, okay. I was going to say, because that, that, I was just about to say, that would really piss people off because there are it so many really people in the They're I mean, they've got, their, they've got their clothing Nazis out there, right? You know, the guys that are just, they put so much effort into their outfits. It's like, oh, you're chalking my yeah. outfit. Well, don't get hit, you know? Well, <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's very hard to argue with a little blue circle on your jacket. It's like, Indeed. Yeah. No, yeah, I definitely uh, like, and I, I had thought about that myself, and then yeah, I thought no, I would, I would get so much hate, you know, from people, just because, you know, just you totally would, you totally yeah. Would. But actually, you know, I've I've had students um, do knife fighting stuff with sharpies, like the pens, that the biggest work? chunkiest sharpies, uh, sharpies you get. It doesn't hurt. I take it they're like if you're bare chested, bare chested, wearing a white t-shirt or something, and they're they're playing with stuff, and you can see a big red streak every time you got cut, and it is. It's horrifying. It's, it's like, <laughs> like, okay, if those were sharp, I'd be dead. What do I need to do to stop that from happening? Um, yeah, they, many were, sharpies, they, were atta- they were attaching these pens to a sword or was no, it? No, 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 just, just, just holding the, the dagger. Oh, gotcha, pen, gotcha. Dagger okay, gotcha. But, but, right. but, but duct taping a sharpie to the end of a rapier is not a bad plan either. I, I myself, I would love anything that would help to increase the accuracy of those calls just because, like I said, when you're – when you're at a high level on the uh, in sword play, and I'm not talking just rapier, but high level rapier, mm-hmm. high level you know long sword, saber, what have you, there's a lot of stuff that happens that judges miss because it just yeah. either a happened too quickly, they blinked at the wrong time, their eyes were looking at one. I, I see this a lot too, where they they're staring intently at one opponent, and then it's that opponent that who attacked in the, the other, other direction, and they totally miss the action. But this is what I like about the classical fencing setup, where you have the president. And you have four judges, and yep. two judges are standing behind one fencer looking to see whether they hit their opponent. And the other two judges are behind the other fencer looking the other way. And so, literally, if I'm behind you and you're fencing and your opponent cuts your head off, right, I don't see it because you didn't hit them, right? right? It's that focus. And then, of course, to prevent um, fight rigging, at the end of the first half or halfway through, they would they would switch. Switch those so, judges to the other side. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's less favoritism going on. Yeah. Um, if there's one thing that I've definitely noticed, though, in most of these tournaments, they don't have a plethora of judges available in order to... No. It would be great, yes, because the more judges that you have, the more eyes you have, obviously, the greater chance that the action was seen. But in my but time, honestly, uh, it's usually like three tops. But yeah, my, my favorite rate of fence, though, because of all of this, is no judges. Just me and my opponent. And we know who, who won. Because yes, it's pretty do. obvious... It's pretty odd. Pretty, I mean, if you and I fence, I don't think we would have any trouble deciding who hit who and when. 
No, we wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but but, but you know, in a tournament, sure. you have to have an external. Exactly, because you are going to have those people that, and I've run into them. You could hit sure. them blatantly, and the judges missed the call for whatever reason, and they are tight lipped. Okay. They are not saying a word. <laughs> yeah. In, and the SEO is famous for this, particularly in their heavy combat, right? I know someone who hit their opponent so hard because after many, you know, he'd hit them many times and they'd said, oh, it's, it's light, it's light, it's light. He hit them so hard. He broke their forearm through the armor, and the guy called it as light. <laughs> right? Some people really want to win, and they don't care how they do it. I have heard some pretty crazy. Uh, yes, I've heard some pretty crazy calls. I mean, there was a time that I was fencing against somebody. It was and again, it was an SCA tournament, and I lunged in and got back out again. And the person goes too fast. That was literally the excuse. Too fast. Really? And I was like, uh. What? <laughs> I was I was flabbergasted for a moment. I didn't know what although, to say to that. It was kind of. Although there'll be plenty of SCA people listening to this, so let me yeah. just get this in here, right? Yeah. I have had the pleasure and the privilege of um, being the rim director when SCA people were fencing Hema people mm. at an event called Lord Baltimore's Challenge. Um, oh, I've been there. Yeah. And and the SCA were the SCA fencers were marked by their extraordinary honesty, courtesy, and chivalry, right? Yep. So, so while they do have these, these people in, in the SCA who will behave that way, it is not the standard. I just thought oh, I'd better don't, float don't that get me in wrong. Yeah. my SCA The vast friends. majority of rapier fighters that, that I have fenced with in the SCA are very quick and very honorable about calling their shots, but you are going to have those individuals. And I've run into these people on the HEMA side too. Like mm. I said, there have been people that – when I hit them, the judges missed it, and they're like, uh, "Yeah, he he totally got me." They self call it, and you know everything yeah. proceeds accordingly. That's how they should be. And there are those who it does not matter if if it doesn't matter if I was to hit them square in the face somehow, rock their head back, and the judges missed. They will not call that. I, I mean, there's just those people that are so intent on going into the next round to to winning this tournament. It's oh goodness, you guys are missing the whole reason why we're doing this. You know, I was I was once at this. Uh, I was fencing in a tournament um, for my university team, and it was I think the Scottish universities open, something like that, many moons ago. And there was this guy who, from some other university, I didn't know him at all, who was just a terrible fencer. I mean, he had, he'd been training a few months, maybe. He wasn't the slightest bit fit. He really was just, he had. Mm, Pretty much no hope. Anyway, in one of his, yeah, had, his had bouts, a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, one, in one of his bouts, um, there was a you know, as is as is common in sport fencing, two lights go off, and it was called by the the president or the, the director for him. He disagreed with the call, but you do not argue with the judge, and this is probably the only point he scored in the entire tournament, right? Hmm. And on the next pass. Because he had disagreed with what had just happened, he lowered his sword and just walked forward and let his opponent hit him to even it up. And I thought to myself, that, he may be a I, terrible fencer, but he's a fucking good swordsman. I like him already, absolutely. Yeah. Because that person cares more about the actual display, the skill. The truth. He cares about yeah. that as opposed to the points. And that's, yeah. yeah. And ideally speaking, I would... If I could, I would put that in absolutely every single person out there. So that way we already know everybody's got it. Fortunately, I do think most of the people out there, most of the sure. fencers, the swordsmen out there already have this. Um, at least that's been my experience. But you will, you, you know, you'll get the occasional one off that is just, they forget why they're really out there. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So we've we sort of we sort of segued onto the things I wanted to talk about tournaments um, that I mentioned earlier. Um, so let me jump on to the next thing. And um, in your book, you detail your school's ranking system, which is completely unlike any other ranking system I've ever seen. And I just thought it might be interesting for the listeners to hear about it. So would you mind describing it and explaining how it works and why you came up with it? Sure. So the why that I came up with this particular system is because I had seen other schools uh, and their their particular ranking systems, whether they're giving specific names or what have you to the, the different levels that, they, that the students can achieve. And it was really more, um, there was... Uh, in my mind, anyway, there just seemed to be too much subjectivity to it. It was it was more of a, well, I feel you're ready for this, so we're going to go ahead and test you. You can go through some of these form flows or whatever the case is, and ah, boom, here you go. You are now, insert title here. Okay. Um, for me, though, it has always been about, I want to see my students growing in their unabashedly, unapologetically in their skill. I want to see that skill in them truly come out. So I decided to come up with a system that was completely and entirely only skill-based, and it had to be demonstrable. So first thing that happens is a person comes to me, for example, and says, hey, I want to learn your ways, and okay. So um, I then give them what's called a black cord, and this marks them as being a student. Now, we will then proceed with a year's worth of training. Sometimes it takes a little bit more. It's up to the teacher to decide when that student is ready. But when that teacher decides the student is ready, that student will then be tested in what is called their black scarf test. And if they succeed in this test, then they will be awarded their black scarf. They will trade in that cord for a black scarf, and they can then proceed to start fighting for ranks. Now, those ranks on that scarf are what I think you're referring to there, and that is when a student uh, passes their black scarf test, then uh, in order to put the first rank upon it, they have to go to a tournament, and it has to have at least 10 other people, not counting themselves, they emerge the victor, that's first rank. Second rank is similar in that it's a 20-man tournament. And, and mind you, these cannot be uh, these can't be skipped. So if you if your first tournament was a 30-man tournament and you win, you you just get the first rank out of that because we want to avoid any of those uh, occasional good days that we've all, you know, we've all we all know about those. So second rank is a 20-man tournament, third rank is a 30-man tournament, and then in the fourth rank, things get a little bit more complicated. It is a two-part. To get your fourth rank, you need to participate in a 40-man tournament and become the victor, but you also must fight three opponents at the same time and win. Now, this can be done a, a couple of ways, but uh, and we can talk about that if you like, but that fourth rank is dependent upon winning that 40-man tournament and you are successful against three opponents at the same time. Uh, which, by the way, also is a slightly different skill set than fighting one-on-one. -on -one. I can tell Completely you that Completely right different skill set. <laughs> Absolutely. And then fifth rank, uh, the final rank, is a 50-man tournament, and it is five-on-one. So um, my whole system on that is once a, once a student has that black scarf on their arm, I cannot simply say, you know what, I think you're ready for second rank, so go ahead and put second rank on your arm, or, or I can't test no, that. There has to be a test of some kind. Yeah. It is, they have to, now mind you, that doesn't mean that they can go out there and just simply say they did so. These things are witnessed. But um, yeah, that 10-man, 20-man, 30-man, 40-man tournament, those things are witnessed. But you also have to get to the point where that fourth rank is a three-on-one 
and that fi that fifth rank is a five on one. And yes, if you are truly wanting to get to those ranks, you're going to have to work with your teacher on how do you do that. And there are like like I just mentioned, fighting multiple people at a time is not the same as fighting one person uh, in a dual situation. And there are techniques and tactics and strategies that you need to impart to that student if they are going to be successful in that. And um, but yeah, that's that is okay. how a, a student progresses through my school system. Okay, so. Two, two things. We'll start with the first one. Okay. Just thinking about the tournaments. Mm. So the to advance up those ranks, you are dependent on the tournament network. So I assume you're not organizing these tournaments. Is that correct? I am not. No. This is okay. uh, these, these tournaments can be a person can be can go to an SCA event and participate mm -hmm. in one of their tournaments, which, by the way, the SCA has got some really skilled fencers, which is why I include those tournaments as a part of their ability to test, because they sure. have got some really great fencers out there. Maybe. So you can go to there in order to do that, or it could also be done on the HEMA side. So what happens if you have a student who is going for their thing, and they are they certainly deserve it, but in every final, they are up against someone who has your grade four or grade five, and obviously they're going to get slaughtered. <laughs> Exactly. Right. So I actually have accounted for that because, for example, I mean, I am very active uh, both in SCA tournaments as well as on mm -hmm. the HEMA side as well. And I am obviously, you know, fifth rank. Uh, I would never expect my students to do anything that I haven't already done myself. But let's say uh, one of my students who is going for his his fifth rank. Right. And we meet in the finals. And because I train this person, I do have a little bit of an advantage, A, in my experience, and B, I train this person. So I know, yeah. you know what their strengths and weaknesses are. As long as there are 50 people in that tournament, not counting me, for that person to have gotten into the finals, there were 50 other people, not counting me, that were not there. I will not count against them at, for that fifth rank because, let's okay. face it, I would have to sit out of these tournaments in order to give these guys that opportunity. So as long as there's 50 other people there, not counting me, and they made it to the finals against me, okay. they'll okay. get that fifth but, rank. But there are, there are plenty of, of other people who are massively experienced who might show up to a 20-person tournament or a 10-person tournament just for fun. Indeed. Right? And your relatively beginner student going for their first rank hasn't a hope of beating them because they just don't have the experience yet. <laughs> it is true. So, but that student is going to see and learn and grow from the fact that they are fencing against these other people. And if I'm doing absolutely. my job right, they're going to be, they're, they're going to see that and they're going to study and they're going to learn what these people are doing. But no, these are not giveaways. These, you are absolutely correct. There could be another person like me out there coming up against this student who wants to get their first rank and they get knocked out of that tournament because I'm the one. Well, uh, it's, it is that student can take it one of two ways. Oh my God, this is so unfair. Or they can go, wow, here's a really good opportunity for me to grow and learn. And why did this person get me? And hey, maybe I should go and talk to this person and find out what they think. How did they get me? These are all opportunities for growing. The thing about it is that the ranks themselves are not, not really important. It sure. is the growth of the student. And I want them to take that. The ranks are a great way to show your progression. They're a great uh, personal marker and they are great personal goals for every single fencer in my system to to take on in, in order to uh, to shoot for that next uh, accolade, if you will. 
but it is not uh, not going to be easy, and nor is it going to be a gimme. It's something that they are definitely going to have to fight hard for, and especially once they start fighting multiple people at a time. Okay, well, let's talk about that. How how do you train them to fence multiple opponents, and do you have any historical sources for that, or is that modern stuff? That right there is all based upon my experience. I, I, I'm not using... Uh, when I'm teaching a student how to fight multiple people at a time, it is based on, and like I said, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel around the world, mm-hmm. and I have had the opportunity to fence against multiple people in multiple different styles and multiple different skill levels. When I'm teaching that student, I'm doing so from the perspective of first and foremost is about time, right? Most people mm-hmm. make the mistake of, let's say um, I put that student in front of three fencers. Well, the first mistake they're going to make, I guarantee you this is going to happen, is that they're going to see an opening on one of the people, and they're going to lunge in there, and maybe they hit that person, but the other two people, because they didn't deal with the fact that those people can now hit them, they get hit. So, okay, yeah, if you're fortunate, you got one of them, but the other two people got you. Well, in a martial context, what does that do for you? So then I tell them, okay, what do you do differently now? And then we start going through some tactics and strategies and the techniques about how to deal with one person's sword, attacking another person while, again, simultaneously dealing with that sword. There are many and beautiful, beautifully creative ways that you can take down multiple people. Because I'm telling you right now, the the biggest flaw that those people are going to have, they don't know how to fight as a team. They really don't. That is the number one flaw. Shouldn't they train to fight as a team to make it more interesting? Yeah, absolutely they should. But I'm telling you right now, go out there and find three people. Just try to find three people that are that are used to and are fighting as a team, which is, by the way, very likely, let's say we lived 500 years ago, right? And you're in an alley somewhere and you, you find yourself against three ruffians. What are the odds that these guys are a professional team of fighters? They are have, for certain. They're probably good in terms of, okay, here's how we're going to ambush this guy, but I I will bet you dollars to donuts that they are not versed in how to fight as a team. In other words, this person does something Ah, and the other person covers for them. And I I disagree because if their livelihood depends on their effectiveness, they will learn to fight as a team because it makes life. I mean, okay. If you, if you've ever seen, you know, the, the three boxes and and a ball game. Yes. Right. right. Um, that's a that's a word for it. Um, anyway, uh, I know what I, you're speaking I've, of. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's one person doing the game, right? And he's interacting with the crowd who are watching, and he is basically making bets and basically fleecing everyone because actually it isn't one person; it is a team. And there's someone in the crowd who wins, which who's on the team, right? To make everybody see that the game's not rigged. Right. right, and there's someone in the crowd who's encouraging other people to have a go, sure. and there's someone, there's someone that even maybe behind the person doing the game, um, who is sort of keeping an eye on things and and sort of on your side when you mm. when you decide to risk your money and because uh, you know where that ball is, of yeah, course sure. it isn't there at all, right? Um, there it is, well, and I think I think okay, yes, of course. Perhaps the the average gang of criminals is is not particularly you know, trained, but um, most I think professional murderers, robbers, whatever footpads, should we say? Mm. I think they probably would have worked out a thing like, okay, you distract him, I'll club him on the back of the head, and you take his his person run. You know, they, they will sure. do that. 
and what you're talking about there is some basic coordinations that have absolutely mm-hmm. nothing to do with how well three people are going to fight side by side against somebody who is skilled in fighting the back. Let me, let me give it to you. Uh, I like this example for a very simple example about how you can deal with, uh, let's say I'm facing three people. Yeah. Now, I have uh, in my techniques are very, they are very sharp. And when I need to impart power into my opponent's weapon, trust me, I can do that rather effectively. So I'm facing three opponents in an alley somewhere, right? We all draw swords and I've got three people The person in front of me, just as an example, when I strike that person's weapon with a beat to send it into the guy on my left, right? That guy's sword swings across and gets in the face of the other guy. Now, for this one beat of time now, I have eliminated the central fencer and the person on the left because he's got a suddenly a sword has appeared in his face, probably even, you know, probably struck him in the face. In that beat of time, while those guys are completely out of the fight, I will do a potential stringe air attack against the person on the right side, engaging that person's sword and killing that person and then stepping toward them as I withdraw that weapon in order to put distance between me and the other two. That is but one piece. That is one tiny little technique that you can employ. And now suddenly three fencers have become two. And one of the guys is now bleeding on the ground and probably you've got the chaos of that going on right there. How... uh, how much they're going to want to uh, engage you after that is going to be entirely situationally dependent, of course, but it's little things like that. When you string them all together, there's a technique in my book, even, uh, Revelations of Rapier, where I talk about fighting uh, the three people at a time, and it is through the technique that I call dervish. And it literally is over in a matter of probably two and a half seconds, you will dispatch three fighters all effectively without ever being struck yourself. And it is, but it has to be done with all of the techniques that you're utilizing, all of those have to be sharp. All of those have to be spot on. You can't be uh, weak in beats, for example, or really strong with beats, but you're weak in footwork, for example. You have to have everything. All of the tools available have to be sharp. But trust me, it is it is a lot uh, more doable than people think. I've done this so many times. The most people I've ever sure. fought at, at one time is 15. Now, mind you, these were not experienced you know, swordsmen at the level mm-hmm. that I have, but uh, through the use of the terrain and uh, the using their own bodies as obstacles and the techniques that I had, um, it, it was a grand time. It was a lot of fun. We all had you know a good time with it. But, uh, but yeah, but, but five people against one, is entirely doable as long oh, as you know yeah. how. Yeah, I've I've seen. Um, I mean, quarter staff against sword is even easier. But I've seen Terry Brown um, take on a room of sixteen people holding single sticks, and he had a quarter staff, and he had no problem dispatching the whole lot of them. Um, and then that was impressive. But what was more impressive was an hour later, those students in groups of four had no difficulty three on one. Right. Yep. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's just, it's a situation that has to be trained for. And until your opponents are working as a team, it's pretty straightforward. But the moment they're working as a team, I think so the moment they're working as a team, it is three. a hell of a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> it truly is. Yeah. Um, okay. So what is the, I have a couple of questions that I ask all my yeah, guests. Yeah. Um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? So um, the best idea that I haven't had an opportunity to act upon yet, but I will be in the future, uh-huh. and that is I want to um, 
and we'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to get to that other topic again l uh, later on. But uh, there is a, a rapier combat uh, game, if you will, and it's called Blood mm -hmm. of Heroes. And um, it has always is that been a board game, card game. No, no, this is a rapier combat game whereby it is a five on five, and it happens okay. on a rectangular field, and there's a stake at either end of the field. And the right. whole okay. the, the goal is to take what's called the dog skull, and you put it on your opponent's stake in the back end of your opponent's field. But uh, what makes this unique is that each one of the five people on a team have a different weapon set and the only person who can move that dog skull is the person who's only armed with a dagger so everybody okay. has to work with these different weapon sets in order to try and advance this person down to the other side and be able to strike that now i want you know, to play this game that it sounds is, fantastic it is an absolute <laughs> grand time every time we have ever introduced this to a new location people are just like when are you bringing this back when are you going to do it again it's it is an absolute grand time there's some other rules involved as far as what you do when you get struck. Uh, that determines you know, when you get back in, etc. But the game itself is just, it is so much fun. And and people, is, it's just always gone over like gangbusters everywhere we've ever taken it. So what I want to do is to create an international Blood of Heroes tournament to invite everybody from around the world to come with their teams. And we hold this Blood of Heroes International Championship. Film the whole thing, of course, because it is so much fun. That's It's one of the unique things about this game is that it's not only fun for the participants but the people watching it i mean just have an absolute grand time i mean it's it's something you can actually see and and uh and enjoy as a as a spectator not just as a participant honestly i think that's the only team sport i have ever heard of in which i have the slightest interest <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, I, I, can't, I don't do it justice just trying to describe it okay. to you now, but it is a grand time. It is an absolute blast. So it, it, it sounds like it wouldn't be that hard to set up an international blood No, it wouldn't. Tournament. It really wouldn't. I mean, the, the difficulty, I guess, would be you'd need to get people playing it in their home country so you actually get a meaningful international contingent. Precisely. Okay. You, you, can, you can just do it in your garden. And put it on the internet the day before and say, anybody's welcome. Yeah, and you're not just going to get four people together and say, hey, come on, join my team and let's go and right. do this tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, you'd, you'd at least not do to, it well anyway. Yeah, and you'd need like like local tournament circuits in, I don't know, Italy and Norway and Scotland and wherever. Yeah. Um, so, so they have opportunities to practice that um, is that is my hope this is what would be the end result but even if they decide you know what i'm going to show up and, and bring get just get a random group of people together okay well, fine actually, that's, you know. actually one one way that that you might facilitate it is because it is difficult to get a team of people who will all fly to the same country at the same time that's hard true right? but you could have it so that teams are assigned on the day so whoever shows up let's say you get 40 people right it doesn't matter how many people show up exactly and it doesn't matter how many personal friends you happen to have the teams could be like randomly assigned and that way everyone coming knows they're going to get to play and it might obviously you wouldn't want to run like a high status tournament that way because it wouldn't psychologically right. it wouldn't work but as a way of getting it started um, and you know, people getting addicted to it and coming back every year, then you might say, okay, well, okay, you, you can come as a pair and you'll stay as a pair as you know, and then you know, maybe come as four and it's a five person thing. It is a five person thing. But, and remember yeah. too, I mean, uh, there's, there is, 
we, as we've had in the past, we've had people show up with six, so that way one person could rotate in. It was a way of trying to give relief to right. uh, some of the people on there too. So, but uh, no, what you're what you're suggesting there is certainly uh, I fully expect that you know when I when I get this thing started. Of course, it will be small. It will be probably even uh, just people that are in the neighboring states uh, around my particular state of California that will probably participate at first. But I think as word spreads and they see this, because of course it's going to be filmed. We're going to be we'll, we'll edit it up into a nice you know presentation that people can see for themselves and go, wow, this this looks like something that I need to do. And the following year, I'm sure it will be bigger. And then next thing you know, you know we got international teams coming from all over. How, how much of the game is dependent on actual fencing skill? Oh, it is entirely on... Uh, well, I should say this. Fencing skill is a gigantic part of it because you're not going to be able to uh, advance, let that person with the dagger advance that dog skull to your opponent's stake without having fencing skill. You gotta have that. Um, that could be... But teamwork is just as important, I would imagine. Teamwork is tremendously important because if you try it without it, uh, I guarantee you, that's, you're, you're going to get stormed because the other team that is working together and the team that isn't, it's, it's not even a contest as far as that's concerned, but uh, you do and, have okay. to work together. I'm, I'm guessing at least some of the listeners are thinking, why a dog skull and is it a real dog skull? No, it's not a real dog skull. It's not. It's called a dog skull because the the game itself was is the brainchild of. Uh, if you've ever seen that old Rutger, that old nineteen eighties Rutger Hauer movie called uh, Blood of Heroes, right? And it was uh, they had a a competition that happened in that movie that is what this uh, game was the. Is, is based I upon. See. Okay. So they just kind of kept the name Blood of Heroes. And I, in my, uh, you know, we, we took that game and then we, we tweaked the rules a little bit to make it uh, what I believe is better. And then uh, we kept the name of it because it just it seemed a, an homage to to where the uh, the inspiration came from. But uh, Okay. And, and not a real dog skull. No dogs were murdered in the making. Not a real dog skull. We do not name. harm it. Yeah. I'm a dog person myself. I got two of them. <laughs> and uh, so, you okay. know, it's, it's basically, you know, just a, a, a foam construct that looks sort of similar to a skull, but it, the, the whole point is to take that and to put it onto your opponent's stake on the other end of the field. I just had a brilliant idea. You should have two human skulls, Castro and Fabris, <laughs> and let them fight each other. <laughs> and the two teams could flip the coin to see, okay, I'm taking the Capoferro skull. All right, whatever. It's a, yeah, no, I like that. That's good. I like it. <laughs> okay, now my last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars or similar large sum of money. The money's imaginary. You can pretty much have as much as you want to yep. spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money? I would spend that money the way that I am actually. I would put that money towards the effort that has already begun. Um, I, I'm not okay. sure if the, if you're aware or not, but um, so I have purchased uh, along with my cohort uh, 140 acres uh, in Amador Wine Country here in California. It's forest land, and we have already begun the land clearance, whereby then. We are going to build our castle that we are going to, no kidding, it will be from the exterior looking in, it it looks like a, a 14th century castle. But on this property is going to be uh, my school of fence, there's going to be uh, uh, tournament areas, there's going to be training areas, there's going to be uh, uh, the, the medieval village that's going to be there. We've already got all of these places sited out and uh, we're clearing the trees, clearing the brush, and ultimately I'm going to create a place where people from all over the world can come in order to learn longsword, learn rapier, learn saber, learn all of these uh, medieval martial arts that we have all come to know and love, 
and can train and learn and compete in an atmosphere that reflects the atmosphere in which these things were born. And uh, there's going to be lodgings there for people, uh, or if they can stay in a tent if they so choose. But this place is going to be such that uh, I want to hold... Uh, you know, seminars there on these weapons. I want to, I'm going to invite experts from all over the world in order to come and stay there in order to teach what they know. I want this to be basically a sword fighter's paradise. And, okay. um, but that's, that's where all of that money would go to. I would, I would obviously pour that into what we have already uh, started uh, presently. So you would actually just carry on building a castle with your money. That's actually a pretty good answer. <laughs> I would, I would, yes. This this whole place is going to be. I, I want to create, and I'll mind you, yes. Um, I'm going to retire to this location. This is where I'm going to live, and from there, I'm just going to hold tournaments, training sessions, seminars. Uh, heck, if somebody a lot of heroes tournaments, a lot of heroes will definitely be happening there. Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, so when these people, okay. when these international you know, teams come to compete in Blood of Heroes, for example, they're already going to have a place to stay. They don't really have to worry too much about, uh, you know, the cost of hotels because that can be pricey. We all know that. And uh, I want Probably to make this Probably not as pricey as building a castle. Oh, yes. The, the price for me is going to be rather great. Yes, it is. Uh, but do, do you mind my asking... Okay, leaving, leaving the imaginary money aside, um, yeah. do you mind my asking how you're financing this? Uh, well, we're building it right now even. I mean, I've got another probably probably another 10 years before I actually retire fully from working and, you know, and, and calling it a day and, and then just retiring that. And that is my current timeline for uh, having this place completed, or at least okay. completed to the point where the, or I'm, the castle is done, the, the village is done, the school is done. There's going to be more improvements, of yeah. course. But uh, it is it is approximately 10 years from now, uh, actually more like nine years now. But um, yeah, we've got the area is almost completely cleared that we're going to be using for the parking lot. But once you leave that parking area and you step into the forest itself, which is the, the property as a whole, there are clearings and glades. There's, you know, uh, there will be tree houses that people can stay in. There will be these little, what we call, for lack of a better word, hobbit homes that people can, mm -hmm. can, uh, can rent in order to stay there. But as soon as you leave that parking lot behind, you would for all intents and purposes, not even know that you were not living 500 years in the past because this is going to be a uh, an atmosphere in which these weapons and, or sorry, in which these arts were born. And I want people to be able to come and enjoy that and learn and, and, and um, I, I become do their have best to, swordsmen. I, I do have to ask, will you have plumbing? Uh, well, let me put it this way. Um, although from the outside it looking in, it's going to look very period. Yes, my home is going to have plumbing and electricity. And yes, okay. I, yeah, 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 I'm not going so to I thought I'd better ask. You never know. Some, some people are a little bit mad. Like I said, if you're outside the castle looking in, yes, the castle, there's only going to be one area of the castle itself. And that's going to be the Great Hall. That's still going to be kept very much in a you know period fashion, lighted yeah. by candle chandeliers, etc., cetera, uh, sconces, etc. But the rest of the castle, yes, is going to be very much a uh, modern conveniences of electricity and plumbing and refrigerators okay. and all that good stuff. Um, do you happen to be extremely rich? I um, I wouldn't say I'm extremely rich, but because of the uh, financial decisions that I made early on, I have uh, a steady stream of income that's going to uh, be very useful in, in putting this place together. So, Because, okay, uh, a lot of people I know would like to do something similar. And obviously, the thing that stops them is finances. So, okay, we can we can if if yeah. this goes into an inappropriate place, we'll just cut out this question and no worries, no pressure, whatever. Yeah. But um, could you 
tell us how you do that? So presently, uh, the biggest cost that we have incurred so far, obviously, was the acquiring of the land. And that was, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, it, it was not cheap. Let me put it that sure. way. So I can tell you that. But um, what we're doing is, uh, if I wanted to build this entire place over the course of a year, oh my God, the amount of the cost incurred would be tremendous, obviously, because I'm not mm -hmm. going to be able to do that all on my own. I'd have to have contractors coming in. I would be paying people, architects, in order to do all yeah. of these things, get it done in a very short period of time. But we're building this over the course of uh, of a of a ten year span, and. Um, where we're at right now is we've we've purchased a tractor that we're using right now, which oh my god, is that a force multiplier? Let me tell you that right yeah. now. <laughs> so that is a tremendous force multiplier. But we are uh, clearing land on our own. Uh, we've uh, we've gotten. Uh, I've got a. I've even got a Patreon channel as well. I mean, that um, people can go to in order to get access to exclusive fencing content and also castle update videos that we've been that I've been doing in order to keep them apprised of what's going on. Um, all of the sales of my uh, book Revelations of Rapier is going towards uh, the building of this castle. Uh, my uh, my current funds and as well as that of my cohort, we are. Uh, pouring in tremendous amounts of resources uh, as we go along in these stages, and uh, by the time we are done, you know, people, heck, the HEMA can come and, and host events there if they want to. The SCA can host events there if they want to. I'm going to be hosting events there, tournaments and all of that. So, yeah, it's going to be a a goodly cost to get it off uh, to get everything going. But we're doing it over the course of ten years. So uh, so and far, it, it's, and it should. I mean, if you're if it's basically and an events location where people will like pay for accommodation, whatever, yeah. it should end up paying for itself. Absolutely. Yeah. And okay. there are a couple of, uh, of examples of that already here in the United States where people do that. Now, mm -hmm. mind you, it's, it's not on the, it's not on the scale that we're planning on doing, but nonetheless, yeah, this will be a, a place that ultimately pays for itself. This will be augmenting my, uh, retirement days. Cause I mean, I tell you what, there's, there's no better way I can think of for me to spend my retirement than to have people coming in order to sort of, I mean, that's, that is, <laughs> yeah. that is absolutely the, the and, greatest. And it brings my, my, my wife is a big fan of these um, YouTube channels where people have bought chateaus in France and are doing them up. I've and seen those. Yeah. yeah. And like, and there are people who have like Patreon channels that are bringing mm. in like 20 grand a month. Mine doesn't um, do. Mine doesn't do no, that. No, 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 Patreon, no. yeah. And, and all, the, all these people are doing is basically fixing up an old French chateau, and, yeah. and people are enjoying watching it so much that they are pouring huge amounts of money into support these projects, which is I, I I don't quite understand why people are giving other people money to build their houses with. <laughs> that is a good question. I mean, I know that I have like for my for my own Patreon channel, what I have done is I've uh, offered people the opportunity not just the exclusive fencing content and the and the update videos on the castle itself, but also too anybody who is a Patreon. It's it's not a whole lot of money that they're chipping in. It's I think the top level. Not I think the top level is only twenty dollars a month. But for those that are Patreon supporters for three years, I'm going to put their names in stone on the castle <laughs> it's their, their names are going to be there forever because you know what if you've got the if you're that big of a fan and you are that much of a so you're willing to you know to support for three years i'm gonna i'm gonna put their names on stone and it's going to be there for you know as long as the castle should stand as long okay. as the as long as the castle is standing absolutely fantastic all right well thank you so much for joining me today robert it's been interesting to meet you well thanks for having me i appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about one of my favorite things 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robert. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'm talking to Carrie Holman, who is a rapier fencer and a licensed therapist. She has also written she has also written Psychology and the SCA Fencing Woman, a manual for students and teachers. The moment I read it, I asked if I could include it in my How to Teach course. It's that good. So you definitely don't want to miss that conversation. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute or whether you've got an extra minute or not, that will do it, please leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Thank you.